You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading today is from Romans 6, beginning with verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of these things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Dallas Willard once said that we don't believe something by merely saying that we believe it, or even by believing that we believe something. We believe something when we act like it's true. How do you know whether or not you are believing the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, the answer is right before us, and yet it's so simple that we may overlook it. We know that we have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ when we actually act like it's true. James K. A. Smith tells a story of his wife becoming very concerned about how food is grown and produced and consumed in the United States today, she became very concerned about healthy eating and also some of the injustices that are involved in the process of getting food to our table. And yet he was a little bit more reluctant, and so she began to give him these books on the topic. And as he was reading through these books that his wife was giving him, he be began to be really compelled by this vision of like justly grown and produced food and healthy and clean eating and those sort of things. And he says there was this moment where he was sitting down reading one of those books that his wife had given him on the topic. He's highlighting, he's underlining, he even says, I'm amening in the columns of this book. When all of a sudden he says, an ugly irony suddenly struck me. He says, I was sitting at the food court of Costco with a foot-long hot dog in my hand underlining and amening and yes about healthy clean eating there he was compelled by what he knew and yet his actions were telling a very very different story 
there's a term I'm told in psychology that explains this well, and the term is cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is the discomfort that we experience when our thoughts, words, and our behaviors seem to clash with each other. Examples of what causes this dissonance is, for instance, when we know that smoking causes cancer and we continue to smoke. Or a more trivial example, when we know that we have a lot of important things that we need to do on a Saturday, but we end up binge-watching Netflix all day long. Or we know that any time we, we engage in a text message conversation with a certain person, it always goes bad, but we can't help but respond to that text message. We know it, and yet we do something different. And this dissonance happens because there's something that is hardwired into us as people that resists these inconsistencies. We, we realize that sometimes in our mind, sometimes more subconsciously in like a gut level place, we realize it and it doesn't settle well with us. And so we as people, we do a number of things to try to deal with it. We try to justify our behaviors. We try to explain it away. We try to minimize the impact of what we are doing. We try to convince ourselves and others that it's not bad or we live compartmentalized lives where we try to cover up certain things in our lives. You see, Christianity is a lifelong journey of discovering those, quote, ugly ironies that exist in our lives. Those gaps between what we know to be true about God and ourselves and how we actually live in our lives. And the truth is, we all have those inconsistencies. Whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, those inconsistencies between what we believe and how we actually act exist for all of us. But here is the difference. The difference is that the Christian doesn't have to make excuses for them. The Christian doesn't have to try to downplay our actions. The Christian doesn't need to try to compartmentalize portions of our lives. The Christian is one that acknowledges that those inconsistencies exist through repentance, and then in faith looks to God for the grace to begin to close those gaps that exist. It's not that we don't have inconsistencies, but the difference is that we have hope of change through Jesus Christ. This is what it means, as Paul says, to be under the grace of God, this controlling force, the grace of God now shaping our lives. And as Paul lays out here in really clear terms, grace is not permission to sin. Grace is power to overcome it. Grace is not permission to now live the way we want to and begin to make excuses for it. Grace is the controlling power to overcome it and live as changed people. Now, we've been walking through the book of Romans. If you're just joining us now, we're about, I don't know, a little less than halfway through this book that we're walking through all this year. And what we've discovered is that God has formed a new humanity through his son, Jesus Christ. We are now a people that live and relate and worship from a place of freedom and hope. And as we saw a couple weeks ago on Easter, Paul says that for the man or woman or child that has been united with Jesus Christ through faith, we have been crucified, buried, and now raised with the resurrected Jesus in order to walk in newness of life. And in order to live into that freedom and to experience that new life that Jesus purchased for us, and really to experience our new lives and begin to see those gaps closing in our lives, Paul tells us that we have to determine 
three things. There are three things that you must determine today. Whose you are, who you are, and who you are becoming. Whose you are, who you are, and who you're becoming. Let's begin with whose you are. A discussion about what our life is, a discussion about what our life is becoming, doesn't begin with us. I know that sounds very counterintuitive, but this discussion doesn't begin with us. That is the mistake that we make when we're trying to figure out our lives. We begin with ourselves as the reference point. But the truth is that your life isn't simply defined by you. You, as a person, are defined by who or what you belong to. And this isn't specifically a Christian idea here. Sociologists, um, anthropologists, psychologists, all the important ologists out there are going to essentially tell you the same thing. That you and I are shaped and formed and even defined by that something bigger to which you belong, whether that's family or culture, community, or for us, the family of God. And so Paul begins the conversation with who or what has you. Look at me again in verse 15 and 16. What then? I love Paul's reasoning. What? What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Heck no. By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So here's the big idea here. You belong to what you obey. How do I know where I belong? Just retrace your obedience to what you're obeying. Everyone is obeying something or someone. Therefore, everyone, and here's the kicker, every single one of us is being mastered by something. Something is controlling us. Now, you may say, which I'm sure some of you are thinking, I don't answer to anyone. I'm my own person. I make my own decisions. I follow my own heart. I'm an educated, free-thinking individual. Now, let's overlook the fact that you probably are not that independent and that you have been heavily influenced by decades and decades of marketing schemes, cultural narratives, and now social media algorithms that know you better than you know yourself. But all that aside, <laughs> let's use Paul's language here. Everyone is presenting themselves to someone or something. Everyone. Everyone is living for something. It's that thing that you dream of. It's that thing that you lose sleep over. It's that thing that you, you, you know, spend your days fretting over. It's that thing that you will make significant sacrifices for. Now, for some, it's health. For others, it's beauty. For others, it's education or achievement or career or fame or approval, or romance, or companionship, or financial security, or adventure, or even family. Things that in and of themselves aren't bad. Nothing that I've listed so far are bad. But when we give our lives to them, 
and we offer our lives for them, we become enslaved by them. That, this is the essence of idolatry. We become controlled by the things that capture our minds, by the things that capture our hearts. They begin to control our emotions. They begin to control our time and our mental space and our resources. Now, let me give you another example. For instance, a family that presents themselves to their children and make idols of their children. Now, I'm going to pause real quick, and I'm going to tell you that this is the thing I have seen probably most often in my 12 years of pastoral ministry, the idol of family, and specifically, the idol of children. These are the families where the kids rule the home. And this doesn't mean that they're wild children, disobedient children, but it's very clear when you walk into a home, the kids are in charge. The parents live in fear of disappointing their kids. The child calls the shots. The child sets the schedule. The child determines the vision and direction for the family. The child's sports and hobbies and dreams determine whether or not a family is dedicated to the, to the local church or not, and on and on and on. I share this because it's not a matter of if we're being controlled by something. It's a matter of what you're being controlled by. And the way that you can know what is controlling you is by looking at what you're obeying. What today do you feel like you must say yes to? There's a lot of things that we give into, but what is that thing where you're like, I have to say yes to this thing? Now, the subtle deception is that it's typically the things that claim to lead to freedom that become the things that lead to bondage. The things that we think that we can't live without become the things that we literally can't live without. Now let me give you an example. The, the, the vision of sexual freedom. The freedom to express yourself in your body the way that you want. Where does that lead for a lot of people? For a lot of people, that leads to sexual addiction. Or the freedom to cut loose and have a good time and enjoy myself. Where does that lead? For a lot of people, it leads to substance abuse and addiction. Or the freedom to spend money frivolously. Where does that lead? Shopping addiction for many. The Apostle Peter, in 2 Peter, would say this, the, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption for whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved. What Peter is saying is they promise freedom, but in a bait and switch, they give you bondage. That is what the world offers us, this grand vision of freedom. And what do we get in the end? Bondage. Slavery. Addiction. And on and on and on. Now, this is going to manifest in a lot of different ways, and that's what I'm trying to instill right now. This manifests in a lot of different ways in people's lives. And maybe there are things that I haven't mentioned that are expressed in our church, I'm sure. But Paul boils it down to two simple ways that we can live today. Two simple ways that we are living today. The first is obedience to sin. And the other is obedience to righteousness. You are either a slave to sin, which, by the way, is the default setting of all humanity. We don't have to work hard at that. We don't even have to work at that. That's where we begin. Or a servant of God, 
through faith in Jesus Christ. But here's the kicker. You can't be neither, and you can't be both. And so coming to grips with who you are and how you live and why you, th- why you think the way you think and why you live the way you live, why you act the way you act and why you're drawn to certain things and on and on and on, it is ultimately going to be determined by who has you. And so I want you to pause for a moment and consider this question. Who has you? Perfect timing. Who has you? Kids. Kids, look at me. Who has you? Who has you? Let's look secondly at who you are. Who you are. Man, God is doing some deep work in us, especially me. Thank you for the sanctification, Lord. Thank you. Secondly, who you are. Listen, this order is very important because once you determine whose you are, then you can determine who you are. Look at me again in verse 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. So what Paul is saying is that there are things that were once true about you that are no longer true about you. There were once determining, defining things about you that are no longer true about you. You were slaves to behaviors. You were slaves to patterns that once brought shame and dishonor. In fact, I love it. Paul gets so real here. He says your life was marked by the things that you're even ashamed to admit today. Those things about your past that you would just wish no one knew about, that you could just totally erase forever. But for the believer, you are no longer what you once were. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul lays out this very uh, difficult, lengthy list of those who have no place in God's kingdom. And he's very forthright, he's very honest, and he says, do not be deceived. For neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. But then he doesn't leave us there. He goes on to say this, and such were some of you. Let's personalize this, and such were some of us, wasn't it? In fact, many of us. In fact, all of us. But, he says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in in the name of, of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the appeal that Paul makes when he's instructing the different churches about significant changes that need to occur in their lives. See, when we sign up, when we believe in Jesus Christ, there's an expectation that change is going to occur. And when Paul is instructing the churches in how they ought to change, 
he does it by reminding them that this is no longer who you are. Those things that felt so defining for you, those things that felt like such a part of who you are, it's no longer your identity, Paul says. That's, that's just not who you are anymore. I think one of the most powerful things uh, a Christian, especially one who is struggling with old habits and sin temptations is, is being reminded this is no longer who you are. This is like the crux of Christian discipleship. This is like the main part of Christian formation. Friend, this is no longer who you are. Now, as if that's not good, it actually gets better. The good, news, the good news goes even further. He says, there are also things about you that used to not be true about you that are now 100% true about you. So there are things that used to be true that are no longer true, and there are things that weren't true that are now true about you. Now, we're going to get to the process of growth and, uh, you know, what we're becoming in just a moment. But Paul makes, makes sure that we understand that there are things that are definitively true about the Christian the moment that they have trusted in Jesus Christ. That there's no waiting period to receive our new identity in Jesus Christ. There's no proving ground. Paul says, you are free from sin's bondage. Who are you? You're free. And you belong to God. Who, who are you? You belong to God and you have a new heart that desires God's will, and you have a new power by the Holy Spirit to pursue it. As we look elsewhere in the Bible, we discover there's, there's actually a number of things that are now true of us. John 1 says that I'm a child of God. John 15 says I'm a friend of Jesus. Romans 5 says I have been justified. 1 Corinthians 12 says I'm a member of the body of Christ. Colossians 1 says I'm redeemed and forgiven forever. Colossians 2 says, I am complete in Jesus. Romans 8 says that I live free from condemnation. Rome, uh, Colossians 3 says, I'm hidden in Christ. Philippians 3 says, I'm a citizen of heaven. 1 Corinthians 3 says, I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2 says, I am God's workmanship destined to walk in God's goodness. And on and on and on and on. All other religions focus on how a person has to become something to become someone. You have to achieve a status. You have to create an identity before God. You have to be a good person. You have to do good. You have to reach some arbitrary level of holiness. And then you'll be accepted by God. And then you'll receive your recognition. But the gospel is the good news of what God has made us. It's not you will one day be free and one day you'll belong once you've really proven yourself, once you've really paid your dues as a Christian. No, Paul says you have become. Turn to your neighbor and say you have become. When we experience those ugly ironies that we all experience, and when we're confronted with those just gaping gaps in our lives, those inconsistencies between what we believe and how we actually act, 
The only way forward with hope into real, true, lasting change is this, that we've got to come back to our identity in Jesus. We've got to come back to who God says that we are, definitively says at this very moment, this is who you are. Amen? Let's look finally at who you are becoming, who you are becoming. Dallas Willard, he goes on to say, the most important thing in your life is not what you do, it's what you become. That's what you take into eternity. The most important thing is not what you do. The most important thing is what you're becoming. The Apostle Paul would say it this way in in verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves, this is not the way in. Oh, he's getting in anyways. Oh, that's fun. God is sanctifying us so much right now. That's okay. It's okay, guys. It's okay. It's totally okay. Eyes up here. We're not going to let this distract. I almost just got hit by a car, but whatever. I'm going to go home to be with the Lord. Hey, I want that kind of zeal to move forward in my life like that guy who was just like, I'm going anyways. Okay, I forgot where I am. So let me read again verse 22. But now that you've been... Hey, guys, up here, up here. They're going to deal with that. You deal with this. This is more important. I can't see your mouth, but I can see your eyes. Okay. Verse 22, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Now, I want to zoom out for just a moment and remind you that there are some basic themes that framed each section of the book of Romans so far. The first real major thing that we saw beginning in chapter one is the theme of sin. That no matter who you are, Christian, non-Christian, religious, irreligious, there's one thing that is true about us and it's that we're sinners in need of rescue in God's grace. There's no distinction. All have fallen short of the glory of God, sin. Secondly, Another theme that arises is the theme of salvation. That all who trust in Christ will be saved and will belong. And that the only way to stand justified in the presence of God is on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Sin, salvation. And now this section that we're now entering into, Paul introduces a new theme. In fact, this is the first time Paul introduces a very important concept to the Christian faith. And the theme is, and the word that's repeated twice, is sanctification. Sanctification. What is sanctification? Well, the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines sanctification as the work of God's grace, whereby the whole person, a heart, mind, body, and soul, is being renewed into the image of God, And we're being enabled more and more to die to sin and to live to righteousness. In other words, it's the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit closing those gaps in us, removing those inconsistencies, forming us and making us more like Jesus Christ in our thoughts, in our words, and in our actions. Let me get pastoral for just a moment here. There's nothing that we should desire more for our lives than this. If you're a Christian, 
you have no loftier dream. If you're a Christian, you have no higher ambition for your life or the people around you than becoming like Jesus Christ. Which means that every goal, every dream, every ambition, every endeavor, everything takes second place to this. So how does it work? How does sanctification work? Well, an author named Adrian Warnock says this, although we may initially appear to be much the same as we were when the, you know, the moment before we believed, a change happens within us. We begin a whole new type of life and we become an entirely new kind of being. And then, and here's where sanctification comes in, we spend the rest of our lives becoming what we now are. It's that process of the Christian becoming what they already are. And this is what Paul is really pressing here. He's saying you are free. Now you've got to learn how to live free. You belong to God. Now you've got to learn how to live dependent and trusting of God. You have a new heart that desires God. You've now got to allow that desire to control you over your own selfish and sinful desires. You are becoming what you already are. Now, you know what made the movie The Born Identity so different from most stories? And in a lot of ways, it's just the same old typical like Hollywood blockbuster film. But there's something in the storyline that is actually very different because most stories follow a pattern that's called the hero's quest. And it's about people that are trying to make themselves something. Self-discovery is about going and achieving something extraordinary in order to find their place in this world and to really secure their identity as a person. But with Jason Bourne, who suffered amnesia, it's completely opposite. He has an identity. He has a very real identity. And yet everything in his life from that point forward that follows is him coming to grips with who he already is discovering more and more at each step, being surprised by these instincts he didn't know he had, these physical abilities and these, this mental aptitude and a bank in Switzerland and a passport to this country and training in hand-to-hand combat and like on and on and on. Now the illustration breaks down because God is not forming us into assassins. But here's the point. The Christian spends the rest of their life discovering the many layers of who they already are in Jesus. And while sanctification is long and often tedious and sometimes really painful, the hope that we have in Christ is that the outcome is sure. And as Paul said to the Philippians church, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We're in process, but the conclusion is sure for the man, woman, or child that's trusted in Jesus. Amen? Let's pray.